1: This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio.
0: This is not about Donald Trump versus Michael Cohen or Michael Cohen versus Donald Trump. This is about accountability.
1: Michael Cohen, Donald Trump's one-time lawyer and fixer, came face-to-face with his ex-boss for the first time in five years in a packed Manhattan courtroom today. He testified that the former president instructed him to inflate his net worth by billions of dollars to dupe banks and insurers, backing the claims made by New York State at its $250 million civil fraud trial. Before the testimony, Trump called Cohen a felon and a liar. He's a proven liar, as you know,
2: He's a felon. Served a lot of time.
1: Joining me is Bloomberg legal reporter Patricia Hurtado, who was in the courtroom for Cohen's testimony. Patty, what was it like in the courtroom when Cohen went to take the stand?
0: They had a stare-down match when it came time for Cohen to take the stand. Trump, his whole body was pivoted with his feet turned to look at the witness box.
1: Michael Cohen, they started him off with his past crimes? He described what he pled guilty
0: to. Of course, he's backtracked from what his actual crimes were and, you know, sort of said that he didn't commit some of the frauds that they assert that he committed. But the state attorney general's office was asking him basically to describe what he was supposed to do for Donald Trump. And he said between 2012 each year until 2015, Trump would ask him to come into his office along with Alan Weisselberg, and say, you know, basically ask him to, quote-unquote, re-engineer the finances and ask him, you know, how much do you think I'm worth? And then Trump would say, I'm actually not worth $3.7 billion. It should be $8 billion. And he and Weisselberg would have to go back and go through the numbers and re-evaluate all the properties and assets to come up
1: with a figure that Donald Trump had decided was his net worth. So Donald Trump was just getting this figure you know, out of thin air? Yeah, basically.
0: Donald Trump wanted something, and so they would go back, and he and Weisselberg would put their heads together and try to value assets, be it golf courses or whatever, so that they would distinguish the number that Trump named.
1: Did Weiselberg testify that he never met with Cohen about this? Weisselberg was
0: very cagey when he testified. He never described. This is the first time we've had an insider's look about what these meetings were about. Weisselberg, if you can remember, is a defendant. He was sued by the state AG in the lawsuit. So he, along with Donald Trump, are descendants in this case. So he wasn't very forthcoming and helpful. And so this is the first time we're getting descriptions of the meetings happening with Trump calling him in. But basically his boss called him in and told him what he wanted.
1: Anything else out of his direct examination that stood out to you? Well, Shocking to see these things because so then we were shown the actual statements of financial condition and the statements
0: about Trump's net worth. And they would say, like, Trump is worth $8 billion or something like that. And they would say, oh, by the way, we're adding a 30% premium to the fact that this is a, a golf course that has been constructed and in good condition. <laughs> and so basically, you know, Trump is giving credit for the brand because the building's complete and the construction is finished. You know, that's like saying my house is worth 30 percent more because I keep the upkeep nicely outside and I have a nice little window box outside. (laughs) You know, he said, I was tasked by Mr. Trump to increase the total assets based upon a number he arbitrarily selected. And my responsibility, along with Alan Weisselberg predominantly, was to reverse engineer the various different asset classes and increase those assets in order to achieve the number that Mr. Trump had tasked us to do. That's the heart of this case. I mean, Letitia James, the New York attorney general, asserts that Trump has inflated his assets. We saw the persona of something somewhat interesting where the argument was in the Trump people is, well, oh, you know, there's all these uh, disavowal declarations that basically warn the reader of these documents to say, you know, we don't really stand by these documents. They're just a number, right? And um, we saw this document from 2014 where Trump was trying to buy the Buffalo Bills football team, and he claimed to be worth $8 billion. And that was a big discussion, that it's no fair. Trump's lawyers were saying, no fair. You can't bring this in. There's no evidence. This claim of trying to buy the Buffalo Bills was ever made to anybody, and he didn't buy the Buffalo Bills. So what's the harm? No foul, right? And the judge allowed it finally into evidence because the AG's office says, well, you know what? He claimed that this was his net worth, and these are the documents that went to Morgan Stanley, which was accepting bids. So Trump claimed he wanted to put in a billion-dollar bid to buy the Buffalo Bills in 2014, and he claimed to be worth $8 billion. And he had Deutsche Bank bankers back him with, you know, in a testing letter from Deutsche Bank saying that he was valuable and they had seen his net worth. When Michael Cohen is saying, hey, it's all about House of Cards built on nothing.
1: And was it Michael Cohen's testimony that got the AG started investigating Trump? Yeah, and-
0: Cohen's claims have basically triggered all sorts of investigations. He's testified about seven different uh, congressional investigations. It prompted an investigation of the, you know, the hush money case. It prompted all kinds of investigations of Trump and his assets. And it basically predicated a whole bunch of investigations that now we stand here. And I'm not saying that he's the only whistleblower, but he was the insider that said, this is what Trump was doing, and it started everybody looking at him. And certainly this case originated from Michael Cohen's complaint.
1: And I understand that the cross-examination got nasty pretty quick? Yeah, I mean, you know, Cohen's a lawyer,
0: and he got very offended when Alina Hava, who is Trump's lawyer, started asking him questions about that he lied to a federal judge, just like he lied to his wife on his tax returns and Cohen got very angry and there was a lot of back and forth you know asked and answered it was like a movie of watching people arguing and bickering on the stand it was like <laughs> Cohen is a lawyer and he objected he goes objection so he as a witness objected to Alina's question Oh my! <laughs> yeah you
1: don't see that every day no you don't so have they gotten to the substance of what he says yet
0: Yeah, I mean, they're starting to discuss it. And, you know, at one point, Alina shot back, you're not on Mayo Copa. You're not on your podcast. You're not on CNN. Answer my question. So you can see there's a little bit of drama playing up on both sides. This is Cohen. I'm objecting to your question. And at one point, probably we've all heard, you know, when the judge will say that question was asked and answered. And Mm -hmm. that's an objection. And Cohen said asked and answered because she kept repeating about four times. Did you lie to Judge Pauley, who is the federal judge? He pled guilty to and then subsequently Cohen claimed that he was forced to plead guilty by his lawyers and he hadn't really committed some of the crimes that he pled guilty to originally in 2018.
1: And this is in front of a judge, so all of this is Yeah, so this is like what? right.
0: This is exactly right. There's almost like two divergent trials going on at the same time. There's the trial that's being held if you had a jury and the lawyers are being very dramatic. And even, I would say, the witness, too, you know, like, oh, yeah, And you're watching some kind of, like, reality TV show of someone playing a lawyer. And that's being played to as if there were a jury. And that might be more effective if there were a jury, but there isn't a jury. And obviously, it seems like some of the lawyers know they have a very important client, and his name is Donald Trump. So they're basically asking questions to please him. And then again, you have the one person who is the jury of one who is Judge Angoran, and he's the guy who's supposed to be deciding this. So that's what I say. It's like a parallel universe. There's two parallel trials. The one that's being played out by the parties in the well, as well as the one that's actually going on before the judge. And he has to keep reminding the lawyers, you know, actually, there's no jury here. You know, I'm the trier of fact. So... Did Trump react during Cohen's testimony that you could see? Oh, he had his arms crossed, and he was really—he un- muttered something under his breath I could not hear. Someone else claimed they had heard him say something about Cohen's credibility, but he was obviously very annoyed. And like I said, he literally turned his entire chair around so that <sighs> his arms crossed to glare at Cohen. And then when Helena Haba, his lawyer, was starting up, you know, he, could tell he was very thrilled. A couple of times you could see him actually peering into the screen to look at his statements of financial condition, and you could see that he would be very proud of, like, oh, I have a billion-dollar company. See how great my golf courses are? <laughs> so, I mean, you can see that he's very proud of that. Also, we have some interesting people in the audience. Uh, Todd Blanche, one of his criminal defense lawyers, in the former Southern District Federal Prosecutor in New York. So Todd Blanche was watching this cross go down. A couple of Alvin Bragg's prosecutorial team that prosecuted the Trump Orr case in the fall, and they also indicted Trump in the Hush Money case, they were watching Cohen too. So Susan Hoffinger, one of the lead prosecutors, was in the courtroom for this. So it's kind of like, if you were bored with the testimony, you could look around and see who else is there. And it's kind of like a Michael Cohen, Donald Trump, who's who of people in the courtroom
1: watching. And Patty, it seems like the judge is having... A lot of trouble with the defense lawyers did he put a timer on them at some point well at one point he
0: said that he was limiting them because at one point he said and it did seem to some spectators including mm-hmm. me that the lawyers were repeating their questions over and over again just rephrasing them in the same way you did this didn't you you did this didn't you you did this didn't you and they're trying to make like composite compound questions building on the same questions which had already been answered so at one point Michael Cohen snapped at Alina Habba, asked and answered, you know. Also, at one point, Christopher Keist, who is another Trump lawyer, jumped up and started yelling to the judge that the witness is out of control, complaining about Cohen. You know, there was a little bit of a sparring yelling match going on. Everybody was talking over everybody. And Keist complained that the witness is out of control.
1: If this had happened on TV, I'd be saying, that doesn't happen in real life. (laughs) I know. It sounds like a really unique cross-examination, and it will continue tomorrow. Thanks so much, Patty. That's Bloomberg Legal Reporter Patricia Hurtado. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. Is Lee Rothschild among the most prolific inventors of his generation, as he sees himself? Or is he a patent troll, as his critics see him?
3: I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly.
1: Rothschild is listed as the sole inventor of more than 130 patents, but his network of companies don't make any products. He readily admits his entire business model is built around monetizing his intellectual property through litigation and licensing. And there appears to be more litigation than licensing. Joining me is Laurel Calkins, Bloomberg Law Reporter, who's interviewed and written about Rothschild. Laurel, tell us what Lee Rothschild has invented.
2: Well, first of all, you have to understand that Lee Rothschild is in uh, a handful of unique individuals in the country, and that he's both a bona fide inventor and a patent troll. And if you don't know what patent troll means, it's a derogatory slur that high-tech companies slap onto litigants who show up in court with sometimes basic patents for generic technology, and then they... They try to extract a nuisance settlement that's cheaper than the cost of going to trial. Well, Rothschild's in a different camp. He is an actual inventor. He has 130 patents solely in his name. He started when he was 20. He's now 71. And he's invented some wild things. His very first invention when he was in his teens was quadraphonic stereo, if you remember back that far. And the things he's got patents on now are like virtual reality exercise machines, QR codes connected to the internet. He had a public company for a while in the 90s that was all about barcodes. He was uh, a pioneer in barcode technology. So he actually has a legit patent portfolio, which puts him in a different camp. And that's why he has this kind of love-hate relationship with the term patent troll. He says, yeah, a classic patent troll is somebody who takes a crappy patent and goes and files a nuisance lawsuit you know, to extract a settlement. He goes, but If you want to put me in the camp of legit inventors like the Wright brothers and Alexander Graham Bell and Thomas Edison, who had groundbreaking inventions but had to go to court to defend them with supporting evidence, he goes, yeah, if you want to put me in that camp, I'm a patent troll.
1: Can you explain in a little more depth what makes a patent troll?
2: Like I said, it's a derogatory slur that high-tech companies apply to people who own a patent, and go to defend it in court and say, you're using my technology without taking a license, so you've copied my idea and you owe me money for it. Well, the problem is most patent trolls actually don't have any operations. They're what's called non-practicing entities. And all they do is litigation. They just go around and sue people. And sometimes their patents are so generic that they're laughable. And that's what's kind of funny is, is Lee Rothschild has some on each side. He has some that are very serious, groundbreaking inventions, and then he has a couple that have been named Stupid Patent of the Month by the Electronic Frontier Foundation, which mocks him relentlessly.
1: He's got a sue-and-settle model in place?
2: Yes, he's very upfront that his business model is all about licensing and litigation. He would rather that if a company is utilizing one of his protected ideas, a patented idea, that they simply come to him and license it or even buy the patent. The company that owns Instacart bought one of his patents several years ago to improve their user uh, experience on their app. And he says he's licensed uh, that one that it was called Stupid Patent of the Month. He said he's licensed that at least 50 times to major companies. So it clearly has some merit somewhere. The thing is, most patent trolls, and, and he, he follows this model, is they file a lawsuit and they want damages for past and future infringement. They want a royalty, whatever, something like that. But then they almost immediately send an offer over to their target and say, oh, we'll settle for what looks like couch money, because it's much less than the cost of litigation, and yet it's more than enough to pay the trolls' expenses. We found a couple uh, in Rothschild's name and the names of several of his business entities, one in particular, where he said, well, this lawsuit, you know, we'll drop it if you give us $75,000. And the company said, no, we think you should pay our attorney's fees because we don't think you were acting properly. And the trial judge looked at that and said, well, you know, they didn't exactly defile the temple of justice, so I'm not going to make them pay your fees, but I'm also not going to make you pay them either.
1: But the Federal Circuit Court of Appeals, which handles patent cases, had something different to say about him.
2: In a particular case involving um, the ADS home security system company, they brought forward enough evidence that Rothschild said, "Okay, I'm going to drop my complaint because I, I don't think I could win an infringement action against you. So <laughs> ADS got real aggressive and said, No, we're gonna counter see you for our attorney's fees. And he refused to pay and the trial judge said, Well, eh, let's just let's just call it a day. Nobody pays anybody. And then it went up on appeal and the appellate court got real aggressive and said, This is a frivolous lawsuit. It's frivolous on a face. It never should have been filed and uh, we're gonna require the Rothschild entity to pay ADS, it's attorney's fees, which was like $43,000. So there's clearly a camp of detractors out there that don't like this kind of litigation.
1: Are the people he's suing deliberately infringing his patents or are they working under other patents and so have good grounds for fighting these lawsuits he brings?
2: It's both. Sometimes the companies are actually stealing your idea. I mean, I certainly am not familiar with his entire portfolio, uh, not even close. But I know that I cover patents all the time, and there are legitimate cases where large technology companies have simply taken an idea that they like. They've they've held licensing talks. The talks went nowhere. They took the idea and ran with it. So that happens, and inventors have a legitimate right to defend themselves. Uh, He's filed literally thousands (laughs) of these patent claims, and he's gone after big names. He's sued Google. He's sued uh, Roku, Apple, Samsung. I mean, You look up any high-tech company, and he's probably filed an action against them. I mean, that may be a bit too broad, but it's pretty clear. And sometimes uh, patents are an addition to an idea, so it becomes kind of a gray zone as to what would would fly in front of a jury and what wouldn't. And he tends to file his cases in patent-friendly jurisdictions. There's two primary patent courts in Texas, and he files in both of them. And they're both notorious for having juries that return Whopper awards uh, in favor of the plaintiff. So he's kind of got the choice of courthouse on his side when he files.
1: You talked to a professor who said it's an urban myth that Texas is a haven for patent trolls. But that's what I've always heard. There have been plenty of stories about patent suits in Texas.
2: Well... Yeah, I think that, <laughs> I think Texas, the two particular Texas courts in Waco and in Marshall, which is in deep east Texas, they deserve their reputations as patent havens, troll havens, for two reasons. First of all, the judges are former patent attorneys. They understand patent law very, very well. The other thing is they get so many patent cases that it simply becomes a numbers game. Most litigation in the United States, patent cases included, settle and they never go to trial. But if you've got thousands and thousands more cases being filed in your court, odds are a few of them are gonna go to trial. And Texas juries are sort of notorious for punishing people who uh, steal from little guys. So if an inventor can get their story in front of a jury that you stole my idea and it's David versus Goliath and you owe me, a lot of times a Texas jury will reward that story. But what's really interesting about Rothschild is he's never gone to trial, ever. He's filed thousands of these lawsuits. In fact, I think we counted he has 80 filed since 2021 alone in the U.S. And he's never gone to trial. He settles or drops every single one of them. And I find that amazing.
1: And he's got a team to support his litigation efforts?
2: Absolutely. His, his business model is that he works with uh, two different groups of people. He has a team of patent researchers who are based in India, and they, they are very familiar with the patents in, uh, in the Rothschild entities portfolios. And they actively go out and search for potential infringers that they can bring actions against in court. They do it in other parts of the world. I'm only following the United States. But the researchers bring potential candidates forward. And then a team of lawyers that uh, Rothschild employs look them over and say, that's a so potential winner. That one's a no-go. And they make their choices there. Then he has another side, on the invention side, he employs a team of um, patent attorneys in Florida where he lives that also work with some in London, where he bounces his ideas off of these lawyers and say, I've come up with this idea, I've got this invention, should we patent that? And they research it to see if somebody else has already patented the idea, and then they go forward with that. So he has has lawyers on both sides, helping him patent his inventions and helping him prosecute potential infringers of his inventions. He told me he has right now at least 200 ideas, uh, patent applications in process, backlogged within his own invention team that they just haven't had time to fully finish out and send over to the patent office. He says he has dozens pending at the patent office waiting to be approved. So
1: this guy's busy. So why isn't he the greatest inventor of all time? If he has all these ideas and all these patents, why aren't people licensing them or buying them? That's
2: a good question. I don't really have an answer for you. (laughs) I know that he says he negotiated more than 1,000 licenses. The thing about patents is it's not always the light bulb or the record player or the telephone. Sometimes it's an integrated circuit. Sometimes it's a a way of connecting things together in a series. So the idea is integral to the ultimate consumer product, but the patent itself may not be the consumer product. So he may actually be in a number of products. That's what he claims he's in a number of products. The the patent that was mocked as being a stupid patent of the month, he claims that that's the forerunner of the internet of things, where all these devices are connected to the internet. So he may be in a lot of things that we just don't know about.
1: And there's no way to really check it because he tells you that it's confidential, right?
2: Exactly. He's a private company. He doesn't have to disclose any of this. We went into the patent records at at the patent office and The abstracts are somewhat hard to understand sometimes, and they don't always record licensing. You know, licensing agreements don't have to be recorded anywhere that I'm aware of. So, yeah, you can't verify what he has to say. But I also know that he would not be doing this (laughs) if it wasn't profitable. And I trip over him all the time in the courthouse. I mean, I I look at the filings every day in a couple of these major Texas uh, courthouses, and it's, it's rarely a week that goes by that I don't see one or two actions from him or action on one or two of his existing cases.
1: And yet he says that litigation was not his primary goal. But it sure seems <laughs> like he's made a business out of it. Right. It's because it works. He said his
2: dearest love is inventing. He really likes to invent, and he sort of leaves the mechanics of the litigation to others. But he's a very strong defender of inventors' rights to protect their ideas. So he sort of places himself as a crusader. He spends his time personally inventing and thinking things up. And then he sort of turns things over to the other teams to execute them in terms of protecting the idea and licensing the idea. But he said he would love nothing more than to see somebody buy one of his patents and turn it into a full-scale product just right there in front of him. He would love that. So he says.
1: And in your story, you quoted Pat Muffo, who's represented clients on both sides of patent disputes. And he compared Rothschild to a schoolyard bully. The best way to fight back isn't to continue to give the bully your lunch money. It's to stand up to the bully and show them that it's going to be a lot of work. But the problem is a lot of work and a lot of money, right, to fight these.
2: Absolutely, and that's the secret to patent troll litigation is that a true patent troll will simply say, I'm going to sue you and then you know what it's going to cost you to defend this because it's going to take a while and there's going to be a lot of turns of the screw at the courthouse with documents to be filed. And wouldn't you rather just pay me X, which is chump change compared to that other sum and we'll just call it a day?
1: We've been talking about and hearing about patent trolls for, I don't know, decades Have they tried to do anything to stop this or to curtail this?
2: Yes. Certain states have come out with laws to try to make these kinds of lawsuits uh, more difficult to bring. I believe we mentioned in the story a state in the Pacific Northwest that has its own, uh, you know, sort of patent troll prevention act. And uh, one of the high-tech companies out there that was being threatened with litigation by one of the Rothschild entities countersued him as a preemptive strike and said you're violating the patent troll act. And um <laughs> it didn't stop him. A different Rothschild entity went ahead and sued under the patent anyway. So, you know, it's continuing on both tracks, but there are efforts in Congress too. I think for uh, last year they introduced it and then this year it's been introduced again, but nothing's acted on it about um ways to narrow patent eligibility so that it's not as easy to sue on some of these patents that are so broad they're almost laughable like, you know, connecting two things together in a circuit. I mean, clearly that's not it, but (laughs) Um, uh, you know, it's just some stuff that's so basic. You're like, really? That's a patentable idea? So Congress has again proposed that I think in June, but given the chaos in Congress, nothing's happened.
1: And this seems like it will certainly be on the back burner when Congress does get up and running again. Thanks so much, Laurel. That's Bloomberg Law Reporter Laurel Calkins. Coming up, when you can't escape your debts by filing for bankruptcy. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com TechSF. Rapper Cardi B and conspiracy theorist Alex Jones came out on opposite ends of defamation verdicts, with Cardi B winning a defamation case against a blogger and Alex Jones losing defamation cases to the parents of Sandy Hook victims. The question is whether Jones and the blogger filing for bankruptcy affects their payment of those defamation verdicts. Joining me is James Nani, bankruptcy correspondent for Bloomberg Law. There's an idea in people's minds about bankruptcy that allows you to walk away from all your debts, but that's not always the case. Tell us why.
3: No, it's not. Uh, You know, the Bankruptcy Code has quite a few exceptions to what they call discharge, which is basically forgiveness in the Bankruptcy Code. And for individuals, there are a lot of exceptions to what you can essentially toss away in bankruptcy, there's quite a few under the code, and one of them is for anything that falls under willful and malicious injury.
1: These two cases that you write about, the defendants (laughs) are very different, but both cases (laughs) involve a finding of defamation. Let's start with Alex Jones. He was ordered to pay a jury verdict of $1.4 billion for defaming the Sandy Hook family. So tell us what happened there.
3: There were two different State court cases, both in Connecticut and in Texas. Uh, Alex Jones was sued by families of Sandy Hook massacre victims for basically airing lies about them on his show. Alex Jones lost both of those state court cases. And in total, it was roughly about $1.4 billion between the two state court cases. Alex Jones filed for uh, personal bankruptcy. His business also filed for bankruptcy. And so Basically, there was a question once he got into bankruptcy court, which is, do these judgments that he had against him in Texas and Connecticut count under the bankruptcy code as a willful and malicious injury, and therefore he can't toss them or have them forgiven in bankruptcy?
1: Did the bankruptcy judge make a decision on that?
3: Yes, he did. As just a little bit of background, basically, the Sandy Hook Massacre victims had to file new cases against Jones once he entered personal bankruptcy, basically saying, hey, listen, you can't do that. You can't forgive these massive debts that you have to us in bankruptcy. There was basically a hearing on it. And then the bankruptcy judge from the Southern District of Texas, Judge Lopez, last week made rulings in both of these cases, for the most part, saying that Jones can't discharge and can't toss most of these debts. It adds up to about $1.1 billion that he can't discharge via bankruptcy. There's still a couple hundred million that the judge said there's still a question about it, but most of the debt he cannot discharge in bankruptcy and, of course, subject to appeals.
1: And he is expected to appeal this, right? He appeals everything.
3: Yes. I reached out to Jones' camp. Um, they didn't respond, but um, the next day after the bankruptcy judge ruled, he went on to his InfoWars show. And he said that he still plans on appealing.
1: So now Cardi B is a different story. She actually started garnishing wages. Tell us about her case. Sure.
3: Cardi B, uh, the rapper, basically won a uh, judgment against a YouTube channel blogger whose uh, name is uh, Latasha Kebe, also for defamation. Kebe filed for bankruptcy and Cardi B, a kind of similar to the Sandy Hook families, filed a suit against her in bankruptcy saying, you can't discharge these debts because they're for defamation. Defamation, she argued, is a type of willful and malicious injury. Therefore, you can't wipe it out in bankruptcy. And a couple of weeks ago, uh, basically, Kelly's attorneys essentially said, that's mostly true. There's still... About $500,000 in question, but for the most part, about $3.4 million, it looks like Cardi B will be able to essentially continue to go after,
1: against her. So tell me, the defendant's attorneys agreed with Cardi B that that much of the judgment was up for grabs?
3: Yeah, uh, essentially, uh, Kevin's attorneys agreed not to contest all but about $500,000 of the state court judgment that Cardi B won. And basically means that Cardi B can pursue Kebby for uh, about $2 million in compensatory and punitive damages, a little over $1 million, a little litigation expenses, and another $40,000 in post-judgment interest. The remaining like $500,000 were judgments against both Kebby and her business. So there's still kind of a question over there of whether she'll she will have to owe this money to Cardi B or whether it's kind of the business's obligation.
1: Tell us about the timeline here.
3: After Cardi B won her judgment, there were appeals. She started garnishing some of her wages and afterward Kebby filed for bankruptcy. And bankruptcy has one of the things that you get out of a bankruptcy filing is that it immediately stops all collection efforts. So once you file your petition for bankruptcy, all collection efforts stop. And it also stops ongoing lawsuits as well. So it provides what many people call kind of some breathing room in order to try to figure out how to pay your creditors.
1: I have to say, I find it a little surprising that her attorneys didn't challenge that this was willful and malicious.
3: I would say that, you know, when you get a defamation judgment against you and then you enter bankruptcy and then oftentimes uh you'll see that there is this question of whether defamation falls under willful and malicious injury and oftentimes it does it's not a short thing and it kind of depends on you know when you filed for bankruptcy if you got a judgment against you in a state court or some other type of court you kind of look to what the jury said or what the judge said and what the ruling was and you kind of look at the elements of that once you get into bankruptcy it becomes this fairly complex analysis by a judge of whether it actually falls under. But, you know, apparently in Kevi's case, her uh, attorneys and she felt that it wasn't worth putting out the fight except for this additional
1: $500,000. I'm curious, does she have enough money to satisfy this judgment? Well, so in bankruptcy,
3: one of the things creditors like about it is that it's kind of a fishbowl. You're supposed to go into bankruptcy and basically open up your books and tell everyone how much money you have. You know, so Kevi did that. And she has filed schedules basically saying how much money she has and it does not appear that she has that 3.4 million right now but you know the the bankruptcy did give her some breathing room and it does give her kind of a a venue and opportunity to continue to negotiate with cardi b and her camp to maybe come up with a plan of how she can pay what she can pay you know she might not be able to pay off that full amount but Maybe they can come to some kind of agreement about the money that she already has and the assets that she already has and how that can be paid off in some kind of regular manner. It's unclear at this point. The bankruptcy case is ongoing.
1: Thanks, James. That's James Nani, bankruptcy correspondent for Bloomberg Law. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show.